Tonight, turn with me, if you will, to the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Father, we do pray that you would just open our eyes now to your word. Lord, that by your Spirit you would give us understanding, Lord, and that your words, which are sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord, would divide spirit and soul, bone and marrow, Lord, that they would go to the, the deepest parts of our bodies, Lord, that they would cut us to the quick and reveal to us our hearts and, Lord, your plan of redemption for us, and, Lord, just your word this evening. We come in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Smyrna was a double port city, uh, kind of like Corinth. Uh, that means it was a very big, uh, fast-paced, bustling uh, metropolis. Uh, one of those ports later got uh, filled in with sediment, kind of like what happened to Ephesus, uh, but it was still on the it was still on the coast, and it still uh, it was a major trading port. They were a city that worshipped all sorts of gods. They had they had temples everywhere. They had white marble streets with uh, shopping centers and all that kind of stuff that made um, South Coast Plaza look like nothing. And you know it, it was just filled with temples though. And these temples uh, they had all sorts of sexual uh, rights to you know worship there. And, you know, the, the Smyrnans were really cool. It's like, hey, you, know, you, can, you can basically do anything you want. You can worship any god you want. But there was one thing that they also did that uh, they, they did give credence to Caesar worship. And they did uh, give credence to worshiping Rome as a god. And so what they did, once a year there was one god that you were required, mandatory. Once a year you had to take one pinch of incense and put it on the altar unto Caesar and Rome once a year. When you did that, you were given a certificate saying it was like a little diploma that you could hang up on your shop. Like, yep, look, I did it. Here's my Caesar worship. I'm all good with the state. See me? I'm not a troublemaker. I'm all good. And you put it up there. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, a lot of Christians uh, in this day and in this city had a lot of trouble with that because they know that there is only one God and you bow the knee to only one God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so there was uh, a lot of uh, tribulation due to that. Uh, the word Smyrna actually is a Hebrew, or it's a, it's a Greek word that is translated from the Hebrew word myrrh. Uh, myrrh is um, symbolic in the scriptures of suffering and death. And it is also one of the three gifts that was given to Jesus at his birth. Uh, the, the Magi came and they gave him gold and frankincense and myrrh. Uh, the gold, uh, talking about uh, him being a king, the frankincense, his priestly uh, duties, and myrrh, the death that he was going to uh, fulfill to the substitutionary death for, um, for a sinful man. Uh, we have there 
a, an interesting concept about how uh, myrrh gets its fragrance because it ac is actually used for embalming the dead, but it is also used as a, um, as a perfume. And the way that they extract the fragrance from myrrh is by crushing it. And as you see, when we uh, get into this text a little bit more, uh, all of these things play a part. And, you know, why did Jesus pick the church of Smyrna? Well, a lot of it has to do exactly with what even just its name represents. You know, who it is represents something that's, that will affect the life of uh, his church and his people. And so this book, what is it called? The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not revelations. It's not, you know, it, it does reveal lots of things, but this, the main purpose of this book, the reason why Jesus Christ dictated this to the Apostle John is to reveal the Lord Jesus Christ to his church, to his people. When we uh, read the church of Ephesus, uh, what did we learn? Jesus was a high priest, right? He is the one who it, it walks in between uh, the lampstands. He's the one who makes sure that the lamps are filled with oil, that their wicks are trimmed, right? He is the high priest, but not only that, he is the high priest who loves us. He was declaring to the Ephesians, hey, guys, you have left your first love. You're doing all these great things, all these great works, and yet you have left your first love. And so we saw revealed in this epistle to the first church, guys, it's not about all the works. It's not all about these things. You have a great high priest. He cares for you. He loves for you. He tends you. And he loves you. And the great thing that the Lord requires of us and wants from us and of us is our love. The one thing he cannot command us to do. It is something that we have to give freely, openly from our hearts. Now, as we come into Smyrna, it says, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. By the way he introduces himself to this church, we see that Jesus Christ is the eternal God who tasted death on our behalf. I am the first and I am the last who was dead and am alive. What do all men fear? What is that one universal thing? You know, some, some people, you know, you ask Jared, he's afraid of spiders. He's afraid of bugs and things like that. You know, Becky's the one that has to smash him. Don't tell him I said that. He'll find out when he gets the date. <laughs> and it's on like the iPods and everything like that. Anyway, um, you know, some people are afraid of spiders. Some people are afraid, of, you know, you, you talk to Heidi and she sees a cock cockroach. She'll like, ah! and she'll scream and she'll dance all over the place. Uh, Jan, if she sees a mouse, you know, she's, you know, out the door kind of thing. Uh, you know, different people have different things that they're afraid of. But there is one universal fear that all men have, and no, it's not taxes. Because <laughs> you can get away from taxes, right? There are people who evade taxes. So that's not a universal fear. What's the one universal fear that all men have that is deep within the heart of every single man? It's the fear of death. Why is there a fear of death in all mankind? Because death is not natural. If evolution were true, we would have evolved a sense of like being comforted by death. It's like, oh, you know, every single creature is going to die, so you, you might as well enjoy it. And yet, there's not. There's this, this flight from death, this fear of death. You know, people, I mean, have for ages sought the fountain of youth. You know, and first they, they thought it was in a cup. And they thought it was in a well of, of water. You know, there's, there's a place in Rome where there's this, like, really kind of 
awful looking water, yet they said it's supposed to heal you. It's supposed to be like the fountain of youth, and you're supposed to be able to drink of it. There's even a movie about it, about some pirates, I think, think chasing after the fountain of youth. And yet, like, everybody's looking for this thing. And then, you know, in our modern culture, you know, it comes with plastic surgery and creams and lotions and, you know, diets and things like that. And all these things are going to make you live longer and longer and longer, and you get to be young forever. And yet, they all die. And yet there, there are people who are complete vegetarians. They stay out of the sun. They you know, do all their exercise every single day and yet die of a heart attack at 50. Death comes to every single man and every single woman. And there's this constant fear because we weren't made to die. When we were made in the image of God, we were made eternal. Adam and Eve were not built to die. And God said, if you eat of this fruit of the knowledge, the, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you eat of that fruit, then you will surely die. Before that, there was no death that was put in. Death is part of the curse. And so there is this natural fear. It's actually an unnatural fear of this thing that everyone experiences and yet no one is supposed to. And that is this thing called death. And so we see in the introduction of this letter to the Smyrnans, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. I am the eternal God. I was in the beginning at the vanishing point of eternity, and I go and I will go, and I am at the vanishing point at the future of all eternity. He says, I, I consume all of it. He says, not only that, he said, but I've already died. He says, I went to the grave he says, I tasted the death that all of you fear. And he is the only one who has ever come back from the grave to say, it's all cool, guys. There is no sting in death anymore. The grave is robbed of its victory. It could not hold me. And if you were in me, it cannot hold you. And there is no fear any longer of the grave of death. That's a pretty cool promise, isn't it? Jesus Christ, the revelation, the eternal God. That's, who, that's how he's addressing this church. Why? Why is he, why is he addressing, you know, he, he addressed uh, the church of Ephesus. Ephesus means darling. And remember, he, he was addressing their love, their relationship that had faded. And now he's addressing them, the, the smearnins, the myrrh, the sorrow, the death. And he says, hey, I'm the eternal God and I was dead. And I've come to life. I am here before you now. The one who has tasted the very death. The thing that you fear so much. He says, I've already gone ahead of you. Jesus is not one who teaches from, hey guys, do what I say, not as I do. No, he leads by example. And he went to the grave. And he came back because he had authority over the grave. So he says, you need not fear. Be anxious for nothing. Jesus declares, my peace I leave unto you. Not as the world gives. Not a fleeting peace that is here for a little while, but then when things go wrong, it's like, oh no, I'm afraid again. He gives a peace that stands up even the torture of the cross. He says, for Father, I know you have not forsaken me. And he says unto us, the believers in him, this evening, if you are in my hand, no one can take you out. Not demon, not uh, anything, not life, not death, nothing can take you out of my hand. He goes, and if that's not enough, he says, you're also in the Father's hand. And ain't nobody taking you out of his hand. The only thing is we do have a choice of whether we stay in that hand. We can move ourselves from that hand. Jesus, all over the place, he gives lots of warnings about 
abide in me, stay in me until the end. There's all sorts of things. There's um, back in the Old Testament a scripture where it talks about that if a man is um, righteous all of his days and then at the end of his life turns from his righteousness, he says his, re- his righteousness will be remembered no more. And he says that man will be judged. He will die according to his wicked deeds. He said, but to the man who was unrighteous all of his days and then at the end of his life turns unto me and is righteous and walks in all my ways, he goes, that man will surely live. And he said, the Jews at that time were like, that's not fair, Lord, that's not fair. And he goes, is it not fair? He goes, it's you who's not fair. He says, the the righteous man who turns from his righteousness to his evil deeds, it's his evil deeds that kill him. He says, but that man who did wickedly all of his life and turns to his righteousness, he becomes righteous. He says, that man is righteous. His deeds, you know, who who he was in me saved him. And you're like, wow. So Jesus is saying, hey, I I am the beginning, I'm the end. I am the first and I'm, I'm the last. I am the eternal, everlasting God who has tasted death for you. You need not fear it anymore. Just come with me. And he's addressing a church that was going through and was going to suffer even much greater things as the uh, persecution from the Caesars came. We also find out in this text that things aren't always as they appear. In verse 9, Jesus says to the Samaritans, he says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. There are many things in this life that are not as they appear. You know, he, he looks at, uh, at their works, and you, you kind of think, hey, you know, well, yeah, he goes, I know your works. And he, doesn't really, he, he just kind of blows past them. Do you notice that? Well, when we went over the church of Ephesus, like the Lord just like, boom, 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 like all these commendations of all these fantastic things that they did. And he's just like, wow, you guys are doing awesome. You know, he really pointed out all of these attributes, all these works that they did. And yet, to the Smyrnans, he just says, I know your works. And he says nothing more of them. And he moves on. But, you know, these letters were being brought to, you know, this one book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, was brought to each of these churches in turn. And, you know, the, the Smyrnans could look at this kind of go like, wow, you know, maybe we're just, maybe we're not doing as well. You know, the Ephesians, man, yeah, you know, they, they need to love the Lord a little bit more. But, you know, gosh, look at all those cool things they're doing. And the Lord kind of passed over us. And, you know, there can be this feeling of insignificance. Have you guys ever felt like that? Like, gosh, you know, you know, this guy over here, you know, he's just like this incredible evangelist. And he goes and does all these things. And, you know, I don't know if you guys, any of you guys know Brian McDaniel? This guy, every single time you see Brian, McDaniel, hey, 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 I got a verse for you. Let me show you something. And he's always got his Bible. And he wants to show you a verse. And he's always there. And like, it's like, gosh, this guy just, you know, lives and breathes the word. And then, you know, he goes and travels around the world, all over the place, all on his own. And, you know, he, he like, you know, hands out gospel tracts. You know, some of the, the gospel tracts that we have, those little Smile Jesus Loves You books that the kids pass out, were from Brian McDaniel. He gave them to us. And, you know, he'll just go like all over the world and he's like sharing the gospel, doing the Jesus movie over here, you know, going into the Orthodox uh, Jewish section of, of Israel and like trying to evangelize and almost got stoned to death. You know, I mean, like literally like he just has like all these adventures. You know, he, he's got this thing over in Haiti now that he's doing where he's like just, you know, reaching out to the kids and, you know, he comes back with all these stories of all these amazing things that he does. 
And all these like amazing ways that the Lord has moved and like shown himself, you know, strong on his behalf. And you just go like, wow, wow. And I haven't done anything. Well, you know, I pray, you know, I pray every day for the persecuted saints and, you know, I pray every day for my pastors and, you know, and I pray every day, you know, you know, for the people in my neighborhood to get saved. And, you know, and, and I, I spend a lot of time in prayer. You know, I fellowship with God. I sit at his feet all the time. He goes, but what's that compared to like McDaniel? It's like, oh, you know, what is that? It feels so, I feel so insignificant. Things aren't always what they appear. He says, I know your works. And these works are just that. They're good works. They're good deeds. They're, they're things that we do in Christ. It's, they're, they're works. He says, but I also know your tribulation. That word tribulation means to press or to crush. Yeah, oh, that's kind of weird. He says, I know the crushing that you're going through. I know the pressure that you are going through. Now, remember, uh, remember about myrrh, about this very city and what it's called, myrrh. How do you extract the fragrance from myrrh? You crush it. You add pressure and you crush it and you crush it until it breaks down. And as it breaks, the fragrance is released. And so there's a lot of times when we feel great pressure on who we are and what we are and what we are doing. And there's this great like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I'm breaking and, you know, I'm being destroyed. You know, the Lord is crushing me. He's destroying me. But things aren't always as they appear. Because the very crushing, the act of that pressure coming down upon our lives is actually drawing something out of us. A great fragrance before the Lord. Because as this Smyrna church, as they were beginning to be crushed before the Lord, as the persecutions began, you know, starting with Nero, as we saw in the uh, Ephesian church, but then it's going gonna, it's gonna to continue on to Domitian. And you know, there, there's a whole line of 10 different Caesars that are literally going to kill 5 million Christians in, between their reigns. And there's this great pressure that uh, is coming upon these, uh, these Smyrnans, and yet it's not to destroy them. It's not to destroy them. The heavy hand of the Lord isn't upon our lives. It's not upon our shoulders to crush us and to break us in such a way that we are no longer useful for anything. But the hand of the Lord comes upon us many times to break us, yes, but not unto destruction, but unto life. And that our lives might be a fragrance unto him. And in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, let me just read this to you. It says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. The Smyrna church, remember the Caesar worship? Remember the little pinch? 
All it would take. These guys were literally being drugged into prison. They were being built, uh, beaten. They were being put on stakes and burned alive. They were literally being put into animal costumes, like animal skins of animals that, that had this, the fragrance of a wild animal on it. And then they were thrown into arenas with hungry lions where they were literally torn and disemboweled by these beasts, ripping them apart. And they could escape all of this by once a year taking one pinchful of frankincense, of incense, and sprinkling it onto some coals. And you could, you could very easily justify in your mind, hey, you know what? Gosh, you know, what is it? I know it's nothing. I know Caesar's not a god. I know Rome is not a deity. You know, I'm just going to do this, and I'm going to continue on in my Christianity. I'm going to continue walking in that, and, you know, people are going to get saved by my ministry, and it's going to be all good. And yet there was a conviction with these Sumerians that they couldn't do that. And many did. Many actually folded to the pressure. And they gave in. And yet many went to their grave. Can you imagine? Can you imagine standing before the courts? And they say, listen, right now, walk over to that incense. Take out a pinch and you throw it on the fire and you can go free. You, your family, your kids. It's all, it's all fine. It's all washed away. One little pinch. That's all it takes. One little pinch, that's it. And your troubles are over, everything's fine, and you can go on with your life. And you think, can you imagine the pressure? Can you imagine the crushing on your conscience, the fear of death coming down upon your life? You'd be like, and you're like looking at your wife, you're looking at your children, maybe you're looking at your husband, and you're just like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? You know, I mean, how can I serve the Lord by dying? I mean, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't further the gospel, does it? Really? You know, can't, can't I do a lot more good by uh, sharing the gospel with lots of people? You know, that great pressure. Yet was that pressure there to destroy their souls? Was that choice between worshiping Caesar, a false god that you know is a false god, or standing true to the living God, putting your life in his hands? There's a great pressure there, yet there is only one right answer. There's only one right answer. And these men and these women, many of them, gave their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. Polycarp is one of them. You guys heard of Polycarp? He was a famous one, Fox's Book of Martyrs. And he, he, was, an, he was an old uh, preacher uh, back in the first century of the Christians. And, you know, he was preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel. And they basically told him, hey, recant the Jesus, you know, worship Caesar. Everything's good. And he goes, you know what? The Lord has always been good to me. He says, I cannot turn my back on him now. And they said, tie him to a stake, burn him alive. They put him on that thing. They lit the fire. Tradition says that the fire didn't burn him. Kind of, it was like uh, Daniel and all of them. Well, not Daniel, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, and the fire didn't touch him, and he was just sitting there. And then finally, they got kind of freaked out, so they took a spear, and they stabbed him, and they said that enough blood poured out of him that it put out the fire. <laughs> and they're just like, whoa. That, that, that's what church tradition declares. Either way, here is a man who stood in the face. They said, hey, all you have to do is recant. All you have to do is turn away from this. Just say that Caesar's God. You can worship Jesus too, but just worship Caesar. Be a good politically correct person. Put your little sprinkle on there and it's all good. And yet he said, no. He says, God did not turn his back on me and I will not turn my back on God. 
And he was willing to pay the ultimate cost, pour out his own blood to take the flames for his God. It's pretty wow, huh? Things aren't always what they appear. And you know, when you see that, when you see this pressure and you, and you, you see that, then you look back to the works and you know, it, it makes me think, hey, you know what? Why did God, just, why did Jesus just kind of you know, brush past their works? I'll tell you why. Because when somebody has got it, you know what I'm talking about, right? When somebody has got it, do you need to say, oh, wow, you're really good? No, because everybody knows they're good, right? When their life, is, say it's a football player, right? And this guy is just like, you know, he's scoring touchdown after touchdown after touchdown. You know, you know he's just the guy, you know, he's, you know, he's got the Heisman, you know, and the whole bit. Nobody has to walk up to him and say, oh, you're really good. He knows it. I know. Want my autograph? Right? There's no need. All right? These guys, this church, they're saying, hey, you know what? Caesar, off you go. Do your best. My God has not forsaken me, and I will not forsake him. You know what? Hey, here I am. You know what? Jesus doesn't need to spend a lot of time you know, praising them for all these things that they've done. Because you know what? There's no need. When somebody is willing to lay down their life for the love of Christ... You know what? That says enough. Their lives declared it. And, you know, there, there's nothing in this letter that even remotely says, hey, you need to return back to your first love. Notice that? The Ephesians had tons of work, and God was like, hey, way to go, guys. But you don't love me like you should. The Lord Jesus never says one thing about their love. How could he? Because they loved him so much that they were first willing to live for him. And then second, they were willing to die for him. And you know what? You may say, hey, 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 how many here willing to die for Jesus? We all want to say yes, huh? Come on. But you know what? If you're not willing to live for Jesus, I can promise you, you will never die for Jesus. And if you are not willing to die for Jesus, where are you in Jesus? But it starts back with the loving Jesus. That's, where, that's the fountain that it all comes from. And if you love Jesus, then you will live for Jesus. And if you live for Jesus, then you will be willing to die for Jesus. And if you are willing to die for Jesus, you will glorify your God. And nobody needs to say, wow, you know, Seth, he did this and this and this and all these great things. People just be like, dude, Seth, touchdown. You know, there's no need. There's no need to say anything else because his life would declare it. He also says, I know your poverty. He says, I know your works. He says, I, I know the pressure that's crushing down upon you and your poverty. This poverty, this word in the Greek, um, it means beggary. It means that this church, this group was so broken down by everything that they were literally living the lives of beggars. They had nothing. You know, there's, there's another word in the Greek that basically talks about, hey, you're brought down so you have nothing extra. There's, no, there's nothing extra, nothing to spare. This word means you are completely devoid of anything. You have nothing. He said, I know your poverty. He says, I know in this world, I know in the city of Smyrna, I know according to all the people around you that you are poor beggars that have nothing. You are the scorn and the mockery of the city. 
He said, but you are rich. He said, you are rich. And that word for rich means abundantly overflowing. That's kind of nice, huh? Guys, there are times when in all accounts, it seems like we are completely failing. Right? It, it seems like you know, the, the Lord, he takes away you know, our finances. He takes away our homes. He takes away everything that we have. Every possession you think, oh my goodness, you know, what am I doing? I'm failing. I mean, how, how, how can this be? You know, God, you know, where God, provide, you know, God guides, he provides and all that. You know, where is all that? Lord, where is your promise now? Where is your promise? You know, why am I suffering this way, Lord? How come I have nothing? Because what we do a lot of times... Everything's not as it appears. We judge ourselves and we judge our circumstances in the way that this world looks at us, in the way that our economic system, in our social structure judges us. Because, I mean, you can't go, you know, 100 feet without seeing a sign saying, buy this, buy this, buy this, buy this, refinance this, have this, have that. You know, you know all that equity you have in your house, you don't need to save equity Take a line of credit. Spend it on what you want. It's all good. You know, the housing market's continuing to go up, Right? Right? No. And so, you know, we can look like we are like brought down to nothing. But when we do it in Christ, when we do it for Jesus, you know what? The world can look on us and say, you know what? You've got nothing. You are broken. You are tattered. You are worthless. And where is your God? That's what the world can declare when it sees our life. Have you ever tried to explain like, you know, when, you know, when I quit my job, and sold our house and you know, had to move in with my mom so I could go to Bible college. Have you ever tried to explain that to somebody? They're like, what? Are you nuts? This Bible college, are, is it a seminary? Are you going to be a pastor? I have no idea. They, when I asked them that question, they laughed at me. Eric Tribble, I remember it. Do you know the Bible college? The first time, you know, I was in, uh, sitting in there getting like the information for the Bible college and I'm like, so... You know, and he kind of described how you do the classes and all that kind of stuff, the chuck tapes and everything. And I said, so, uh, Pastor Eric, I said, you know, after you finish this, are you like a pastor or something? And he goes, <laughs> and he laughed at me. I was kind of offended, actually, at that moment. I was like, do you know that I sold my house and I quit my job and you're laughing at me? I'm serious. And he's like, yeah, it doesn't really work that way here. And I said, well, how does it work? And he goes, well... He says, you, know, you, you get to know a pastor, and you know, if that pastor sees a calling on your life, you know, he'll refer you to other things like that, and it's, one thing leads to another, and you'll be a pastor. If God means you to be a pastor, you'll be a pastor. It's like, oh, I don't want to go home and tell my wife this. Oh, oh how do I explain this? Oh, is it too late to go back to my job? You know, I was like, what do you do? Anybody try to explain something like that to somebody? I know a couple of you have. I know a couple of you where, where like, some family members like, you did what? You did what? What do you mean you're planning a church? What does that mean? Yeah, I went on the website. I don't see you on it anywhere. <laughs> What's up with that? Huh? Have you ever tried to explain something like that? And yet, you know, in the world's eyes, we can look like we've, we've, uh, we're just a like complete failure. And yet, here, the Lord Jesus says, but you are rich. 
when you are willing to lay down everything for the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are willing to suffer persecution, when the pressure comes on and yet you are not crushed to destruction, you're not crushed to crack where you give in and sprinkle your little incense on the altar of being uh, socially acceptable. You know, when you're not crushed down to where you conform to the image of this world and what they think is cool and great and neat. When you are willing to suffer for Jesus Christ, when you are willing to give him your all and hold nothing back, and whatever it may cost you, he will say, you are rich. Peter asked the question, hey, Lord, you know, we've given up house and hold everything. And Jesus said, hey, he says, you'll get 100%, 100 fold in this life and the next. And you know what? 100 fold in this life is great. You know, that's wonderful. But you know, all this stuff's going to burn, right? You guys all know that. It's all going to burn. Your car, your house, your condo, your apartment, everything. Your bank account, 401k, it's all going to, the bank's going to burn. It's all going to burn. So, you know, it's like those things are great and they're very comforting when you, when they come, when those, uh, those blessings come financially, you know, here in this world. But you know what? If you can, if you have greater vision than that, if you can look beyond that, because God does bless us in that way many times, but if you can look beyond that and you can see in the heavenly scene and you can see the rewards waiting for you as you faithfully serve your God as you walk in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what? It's like, dude, take it all. Take it all. Because, I mean, think about that. One cup of water in eternity is an eternal gift, isn't it? It's something that is forever. It's something that does not fade. It's something that never goes away. Yet a million dollars here is going to burn. So what's, what's better to have? A glass of cold water in eternity or a million dollars here? I'll take the cup of water. Thank you very much. I'll take the cup of water. Jesus says, you may think you're poor. And, and that's what he's addressing. See, things aren't always what they seem. And this is, this is the area where he's addressing with the Samaritan church. He says, guys, you got to stop looking at this. You got to stop looking at your circumstances the way the, the city of Smyrna looks at your circumstances. He goes, I know you're poor. He goes, I know your works. You may, may, maybe you're not doing as much as the Ephesians are doing. He says, I know the pressure that you have on you and how it's like crushing you and you're just like terrified of what you're going to do. He says, but I, I know you're literally begging. I know that literally for your faith in me, you have been brought down because people have persecuted. They've taken your jobs away from you and you know, you know, your family has disowned you and they think that you're some weird cult that eats the flesh of its members and all that kind of stuff, that whole communion thing, whatever that is, drinking blood and eating flesh, ew. You know, you know, so you know, you become outcast of society, and you be by being a Christian, you can't even operate your business anymore. Your business folded because people wouldn't come to you anymore. And if you read uh, Voice of the Martyrs, you'll see lots of examples of that. And he says, "Hey, you know what? I know that you think you're poor. I know you think you're failing. I know you're thinking like, hey, God, where's God? Where's God in all this?" But he's telling them, "Hey, guys, you're rich. You are abundantly overflowing." with blessing. That's a good combination, isn't it? That's the Lord Jesus Christ saying, like, yeah. You know, he's stoked on them. He's stoked on them. And then he also says, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Uh, roughly translated today, 
I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Christians, but are not. That are a synagogue of Satan. In their day, they, they had two examples of this. You had, number one, case in point number one, the Judaizers. They were the Jews that had become Christians, but were still trying to put this huge guilt trip on all the Gentile Christians, saying, you have, to, you have to obey the law first. You have to become a Jew. You have to be a proselyte to Judaism first. And then and only then can you be saved. It's by your works, not grace, that saves you. You have to become a Jew first, keep all of the Ten Commandments, keep all the rest of the 300 and some odd commandments, and then you can believe in Jesus. And then when you believe in Jesus, then you can be saved. Have you been circumcised? That's what they were asking. They were persecuting them. And they, it, it, was, it was gnarly. There's multiple uh, of the epistles that have uh, you know, Paul rebuking this thought. You know, Paul even said, hey, you know, I wish that they themselves would be cut off. He's like, I wish they'd just cut themselves off. He goes, I wish they'd kill themselves instead of always trying to hound you guys trying you know, to, to get circumcised. He goes, just forget it. He goes, if you, if you get circumcised, he goes, then grace is nothing to you anymore. You are now under the law. He says, don't do that. It's religion. It's religion. He says, I know the blasphemy of the religious. He says, I know, you know the Jews who rejected their Messiah and are saying, you're not the way. And you remember Paul? You know, when he was still saw and he, and, and he was persecuting the church, he was just coming after them. He was dragging them out into the streets. He was delivering them to the councils. And, you know, he was like, he was like voting for them to be killed. It was religion that drove him. He, was, he thought he was doing God a favor, and yet he was the enemy of God. Because he had rejected the Messiah. Because he received the traditions of man. He was following religion. And he says, you know what? I know the blasphemy of the religious. I know how they attack you and they persecute you. And, you know, it, it could be of different religions, but you know what? How many times, especially when you're down, do like people come up to you and put like a guilt trip on you? Right? When it's like, you know, hey, you know what? You know, I, I'm being persecuted for righteousness sake. And they say, well, yeah, you know, you're kind of a jerk. You know that? And you're like, what? That's not exactly what I was telling you this for. You know, like, hey, how about a little encouragement and like pat on the shoulder kind of a thing? And yet there's a lot of people who will, you know, they'll say, hey, you know what? I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. You know, I've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ my entire life. You know, I was raised in the church. My daddy was a pastor and his daddy before him and his daddy before him. We have a lineage. You know, what are you? You know, who are you? Are you as holy as me? Do you tithe, you know, twice instead of once? 20 percenter huh do you i do you know what about you what do you do you know i serve on the five boards in the church you know i do the children's ministry you know the sunday school i also teach you know bible studies in my house i do all these things what about you what do you do you don't do those things do you and it's like gosh no i guess not and he goes i know the blasphemy of the religious he says i know them you know, and, and to these people, he says, he goes, I know that you're poor. I know your poverty, he says, but actually you're rich. In a later epistle to another church, he'll say, I know you think you're rich, but you're naked and poor and ashamed. At least you should be. And so, guys, we have to understand, things aren't always what they appear to be. And Jesus, in his commendation, in his uh, addressing this church, he's saying, guys, on the outside, it seems like everything's, you know, just 
everything's just falling apart for you guys. Everything is just imploding and being destroyed. He says, but you know what? No. He says, I'm proud of you. He said, because uh, many a people, many a people had suffered many things like you. And when they persecute you for righteousness sake, he says, hey, you know what? You're in good company. He goes, because they did the same thing to the prophets, right? Remember that? He said, how many of the prophets did the Jews not kill? That's the question. You know, their, their forefathers killed like all of the prophets. You know, the, the people, the men and the women that God sent to them, they go, we don't like what you're saying. And so they'd kill them. Isaiah says that he got sawn in half. A couple guys got their heads cut off. You know, the Jews really didn't like their prophets. They didn't like it when the word of God came to them because they were sinners. Because they were blaspheming God because they were religious. And so when the people of God, when the prophets came to them with the truth, they hated them and they would kill them, intimidate them, bully them. He says, but don't you fear. Verse 10, it says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Well, that doesn't sound very nice, does it? Jesus is not saying, hey, you're not going to suffer anything. Everything, you know, you believe in me and <clears throat> it's golden. Everything's cool. Your life is going to be wonderful. It's going to smell like roses and, you know, you'll win the lottery. You know, first try, you know, everything's going to be wonderful. He doesn't say that. He says, do not fear. He says, you are about to suffer a great many things. He says, you absolutely will. He says, and he goes, I don't want you to suffer even one. That, that when it says any of those things, it says not one of the things that you're about to suffer. Do not fear them. Because, and, and it's like, how can he say this? Because if Jesus was just sitting behind a throne, you know, and everything was you know, glorious, and he had his blonde hair flowing, his blue eyes blazing, and his little lamb across his shoulders, and he's like... Like this, and he says, hey, don't fear, don't fear about all the persecutions and troubles and trials and you know, being eaten by lions and being burned at the stake. Don't worry about those things. It's fine. You'd be like, are you sure? Are you sure? But because he was the God who was and is and is forevermore, the God who tasted death for us and came back, who suffered persecution, was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, you know, that man says, don't fear. Don't fear the persecution that you're about to go through. He says, do not fear. He says, indeed, he goes, this is what's going to happen. He says, the devil is about to throw, and that word throw means to violently throw some of you into prison. He says, that you may be tested. You notice there's a reason for it? Because, you know, we obviously don't like the idea of the devil getting a hold of us and violently throwing us into anywhere, much less to a prison. But... He says, the devil is about, he says, do, number one, do not fear. This is coming from the authority of the one who walked Gethsemane and then walked to Calvary. Right? He says, from that authority, he says, do not fear the things you're about to suffer. He says, because the devil is going to take you and he is going to violently throw you down. He is going to violently, and lions and tigers and bears, oh my, flaming torches and the like, that's violence. Five million Christians at the hands of the gladiatorial games is violence. You are violently going to be cast into prison. He said, that you may be tested. Notice there's a reason. Remember that, that song that we sang, Refiner's Fire? He says, the reason why God allows you to suffer, the reason why God will even allow Satan himself to grab you and to violently just manhandle you, is not that you be destroyed, 
but that a fragrance come forth from you. He says, Satan is going to violently throw you into prison. He said, and yet that you may be tested. And that word tested means proved. You guys understand what that means? Uh, let's just say this chair right here. You can say, hey, you know what? I've got the schematics on that chair. That chair should hold 350 pounds, no problem. Has that chair been proved to hold 350 pounds yet? No. It's not proved until somebody starts putting weight on that and that pressure starts crushing down on the joints of that chair. And when that pressure comes upon it, it's like, yep, that chair's proved. 350 pounds, it's good. No problem. Much is the same with our faith. Guys, we can say, I've got faith. I love God. You know, I trust God. And yet, there'll be a moment when God allows Satan to come into your life. Where he'll, you know, Satan, you know, Satan always has, you know, boundaries on where, you remember Job? And God's like, hey, have you considered my servant Job? And that word consider means to strategically consider, like a, like a general is going to consider. He says, have you considered my servant Job? It's like, Lord, why don't you just, please don't say that. Don't say that, please. You know, why did you have to bring me up to him? And yet the Lord picked the fight. He says, have you considered my servant Job? And he's like, yeah. You know, but he only loves you because you protect him and give him everything. He says, all right. He goes, let me have my way with him. He says, and he'll curse you. And the Lord says, okay, you can do it, but don't touch his body. So Satan comes, destroys his family, destroys all of his money and everything. His children are wiped out and the whole bit. And Job says, naked came I into this world, naked shall I depart. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Satan says, ah, you know, touch a man, you know, skin for skin, you know, touch a man's body and then surely he'll curse you. God says, okay, you can touch his body too. He says, but you cannot kill him. Notice that. Satan is a yes man for God. He can go so far, but only so far. God has the leash, and he yanks it back. And so Satan goes to Job, puts the boils, nasty boils, where he's literally scraping himself with pot shards and everything. He's like breaking the boils off of his skin, and they're from head to toe. And he's laying in an ash heap, and his, his wife looks at him in the sight of Job. She says, curse God and die. You know, it'll be, you'll, you'll be better. Just curse him and die. Look what he's done to you. And then his friends come along and they sit there and the best thing they do is they sit there quietly and say nothing because what is there to say in that situation? Right, what is there to say? And yet, through that, Job's face, his faith was proved. And guys, sometimes we have to suffer persecution. Sometimes we have to be in uncomfortable situations. Sometimes we have to be put into this place where it's like we have no control where we are completely just like, there's nothing more I can do. And yet what happens in it, guys, you know, I, I can tell you, in selling my house and uh, quitting my job, you know, my faith was proven to a degree. It's like, you know, impurities, fears, and anxieties came out of me that I didn't even know were there. You know, when you start wrestling with that whole thing, it's like, oh, what do we do? And Heidi just lost her job. You know, we don't have, you know, insurance anymore. We've got a baby. I mean, what do we do? And you start freaking out and stuff like that. And then you, you have to rely on the Lord. And also it's like it grows something inside of you. And you're stronger for it. And then, you know, you know, leaving worship generation and coming to plant a church here. And it's like having to like, okay, Lord, you know, we're in our house now. But, you know, they're not going to give us the, um, the, the nonprofit status. 
unless we have a lease saying that we're this, you know, and, and none of these schools want to give us leases. And, you know, Lord, what do I do? What do I do? And we're running out of time. And, you know, the IRS is saying, hey, you're almost out of time. You know, we're going to just cancel this whole gig if you don't get something soon. And you're like, Lord, what do you do? What do you do? And then finally the Lord says, okay, here, here you go. Here's a school. Oh, and by the way, here's the Whitcliffe building also. And he's going, wow. Oh, wow. And, you know, as you get put into uncomfortable situations that are beyond you, you're proven. When you see a friend lose a loved one and you just watch them crying their eyes out, you know, parents mourning over their dead children, I've seen that. And it kills a part of you, like dies inside because of their grief. And you experience part of it. And I actually had like post-traumatic stress on one of those situations. And it just, it destroys you. And yet, God takes that and now gives you an opportunity to minister to others. And so sometimes we have to be crushed. Sometimes we have to be just pressed down so hard that the glory of God might shine through. It's necessary. We must be proved. James even says uh, in chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, he says, count it all joy. <laughs> what? Count it all joy when you go through diverse you know, varying trials and tribulations. He says, because you know, the trying of your faith works patience, and patience maturity. He says, but let it, let it have its perfect work in you. Right? Let it have its perfect work in you. He says, enjoy it. Jesus said, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you. Rejoice. Be exceedingly happy. He said, because such, you're in good company. The prophets had the same thing. And then he says, be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. Do you know sometimes Christ will, cut, will command you to die? Sometimes Jesus will literally command you to die. Sometimes it is a hypothetical, uh, I want you to die, right, to my selfishness. I want you to die to uh, this lust. I want you to die to this area. You need to, you need to crucify your flesh. You know, Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Where did Jesus go? Where is he talking about going? Calvary. Take up your cross, that thing that murders the flesh, and follow me to Calvary. Crucify yourself. Sometimes he says, I want you to be a martyr for me, and he literally means, I want you to die. Like these Smyrnan believers, they were literally commanded to die. He says, be faithful unto death. Guys, where are your convictions tonight? Remember that this kind of goes back to that whole thing. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Because if you do, then you're going to live for him. If you have learned to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will be able to die for him. You will be able to keep this command where he says, be faithful unto death. Don't deny my name. And you might think, oh, that little sprinkle is no big deal. That little compromise, it's nothing. Come on, it doesn't affect my whole, it doesn't affect anything. And he says, that one sprinkle, he says, don't do it. He says, be faithful unto death. Why? I like this part. He says, and I will give you the crown of life. I will give you the crown of life. Uh, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is Paul speaking in verse 6. He says, 
For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Right? I have fought the good fight. I have run my race. I have been faithful. And as he's writing that, his life is literally hanging in the balance. He's about to be martyred. He says, my life has already begun. Just think of a, a, a cup of water. He says, my life, the life of, of my body is now being poured out. And in a very short time, it will be empty and I will be gone. He says, but you know what? None of these things move me. He says, because I know I have a crown of life waiting for me. And here Jesus says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. That word for crown is stephanos. It is a crown. It is something that uh, they would wear you know, in the, um, in the Roman uh, culture. And it was a crown of victory. It was, a, it was a crown of gladness. It was a crown that said, hey, you know, well done. And so he says, listen, guys. He says, I know your works. I know your tribulation. I know that pressure that's crushing down on you. I know your poverty. I know that they're, they're literally destroying you and they're blaspheming against you. I know all of these things. He says, and you're about, it's going to get worse. You think it's bad now. It's going to get worse. Satan himself is going to take you and cast you into prison that you may be tested and your faith may be proved. He says, be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. I will give you the crown of victory. Paul called it the crown of righteousness. He says, be faithful unto death. I am commanding you. I'm not delivering you from death, but I'm commanding you to death. Glorify me in your death. You can't glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in your death unless you glorify him first in your life. You hear me? I've said that a couple times now. And guys, it's because here in America... It's very unlikely that you're going to be called to die as a martyr for your faith in Jesus Christ. You do some missions work in Uganda, things like that. Yeah, okay, now we're talking. But it's very unlikely. But you know what? The same crown of life is offered to us. But you know what? The only way that it will be given, you don't necessarily have to give your body to the flames in order to receive this crown, but you do have to love the Lord and you do have to live for him as though you would die. You know, in, in order to die for the Lord, you have to, the prerequisite is that you have to live for him. You don't necessarily have to die for him, but you have to live for him. And that crown can be yours. He says, be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. Run your race. Fight your fight. Let your life be poured out as a drink offering and rejoice in it. Die for me, is what the Lord Jesus says. And then he says in verse 11, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's all of us. It's every single one of us individually and corporately as the body of Christ at OCCF. And then he says, listen to this. He who overcomes, overcomes what? The pressure of persecution. He who overcomes uh, the pressures of carnality and these things. He who overcomes the things that would crush us and break us down and cause us to offer that sprinkling on the altar. Anything that would cause us to turn away from God and not be faithful unto death with our very lives and lifeblood. He says, he who overcomes 
shall not be hurt by the second death. You know, what does that mean? Okay, well, he's saying, guys, I'm not protecting you from the first death. He goes, I'm commanding you to die for me. I'm commanding you to die before kings, before Caesars, before nobles, before the rabble, you know, in those Colosseums. He goes, I am commanding you to live for me and to die for me. He says, but if you overcome, he says, then, then you will not be hurt. He goes, if you die now for me, he says, you will not be touched by the second death. What's the second death? Important question. What is the second death? The second death is Gehenna. The second death is the lake of fire. And you go, whoa. Why is Jesus saying this to the churches? This is to the church. This is to the church. He says, be faithful unto the end. Be faithful unto death. Overcome. You've got a crown of life waiting for you. A crown of victory and gladness and rejoicing. He says, if you die for me, if you overcome, if you overcome this world, the temptations of this world, if you overcome the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, he says, then the second death will not hurt you. You will not be touched in it. Jesus said, abide in me. He says, if you're my friend, you will do as I say. He says, abide in my love. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Jesus said, live for me. Live in me. And you will have life. It's a great promise, isn't it? This church, even though its name talks about death and persecution and hardship and struggles and pressure, this church lived. This church lived for Christ. It is my desire that this church, starting with this pastor, starting with the leadership, those who serve, and the congregation, and our children, that we would live, truly live for Christ. I hope that's your heart. I hope that's your heart. We can only do it in Him, and it starts with loving Him. Let's live, eh? Lord Jesus, Lord, we thank you. The everlasting God who tasted death in our place. That the sting of death might be taken away from us, that the fear of death may be gone and conquered. Lord, these are heavy words of a church that truly loved you, that truly lived. And Lord, it is our desire that we learn from this lesson, Lord, that we would lay aside every sin and weight that so easily besets us, that so entangles us. Lord, the thorns of this life that deceive us and choke out the fruit. Lord, I pray that you would so move me, Lord, that I would repent from anything, Lord, that would slow me down, Lord, anything that would choke out your word in my life. Lord, I pray that I would truly lay down my life for you. For you said, if I lay down my life for you, Lord, you will find it. But he who finds his life will lose it. Lord, I pray that this church 
would be so moved by your spirit, Lord, that we would truly lay down our lives for you. Lord, that we might truly have life. For whom you have set free is free indeed. We love you, Lord Jesus. We praise you, Holy Father, and we welcome you, Holy Spirit, into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.